Hey, what's up, guys, and welcome to episode 30 of Talk 4, the quickfire podcast where we ask four great questions to unique and interesting people. Behind the mic today is your host, Louis Scoopian. That's me. And our special guest for today is Zach Bitter, who's going to be answering our questions today. Zach, please say hi, introduce yourself, and give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do before I shoot some questions. Hi, thanks for having me on, Louis. I'm uh, uh, Zach Bitter, as you as you said. Uh, I would consider myself, I guess, an ultra marathon runner, coach, and podcast host these days. I uh, got into running quite early in life. Never really took it overly seriously until maybe college years, and then uh, post college, thought it was a worthwhile activity to keep around as a hobby. While I kind of started my teaching career. And that led to getting into some ultra marathons when I no longer had kind of the team atmosphere that I did with like high school and collegiate cross country and track and field. So, mm. uh, I, I identify the long run as my favorite workout of the week. So I just kind of <laughs> doubled, or maybe you could even say tripled down on that and, uh, really developed kind of that end of the spectrum a little bit, got interested in the longer races and, uh, kind of as my interest peaked with it, the sport kind of continued to grow. So as I've gone through my career, the sport is kind of continuously, grown with it. So, uh, it's been, um, kind of a wild ride that's allowed me to, uh, train and race as a professional athlete, uh, start a coaching business for other runners, uh, of all ability levels from essentially 5k up to however far someone wants to try to challenge themselves with miles or kilometers <laughs> or time on feet, whatever you want to kind of call it. And then, mm-hmm. uh, started my own podcast, the human performance outliers podcast. That is absolutely fantastic. And, um, yeah, I'll tell you what, ultra marathons and the kind of things that you've done that takes something special really doesn't it and um you know i can't wait to ask a few questions about obviously what you've been doing in your past and everything so um if you're ready uh superman then uh should we crack on with question number one let's do it <laughs> awesome so for question one i'd love to hear about your backstory so um how did you start out in your running career what were the motivations behind it and how did that lead to all these incredible accomplishments yeah yeah i was a, a super active kid and i think like that was probably a combination of just what I wanted to do and just the kind of the breadth of options my parents gave me. They sort of uh, had an expectation that I was involved with things outside of just like your standard get to school and come home type of a mentality. So that mm. kind of meant I had all the uh, opportunity to try all the different sports. So up until kind of late in middle or mid middle school, I guess you could say, uh, I just thought running was more or less very much one person's faster than the next. And it really didn't matter whether that was like the hundred meter dash or something longer. And for the most part, running was just an aspect of other sports. It, it wasn't until our Phi Ed class did the presidential physical fitness challenge where you do a full battery of different like fitness things to kind of test where your strengths and weaknesses are within just physical fitness. And, uh, it really stood out to me for the first time in my life that, you know, people weren't just kind of like good or bad or average at sports. They were like, some were maybe quite good at some and very bad at others, which was the case for me when you'd look at like the mile run versus the hundred meter dash. Mm. So, uh, that kind of gave me a little bit of an incentive. I think being, being that young to kind of prioritize some of the longer stuff, relatively speaking with like track and field day and things like that. So, as I uh, kind of got through middle school and and kind of had that as like a little bit of a background interest, it made a little more sense for me to kind of continue that trajectory into high school for the most part. So that meant cross country in the fall and track and field with a little bit of a skew towards the longer events in uh, the spring. And uh, by my senior year in high school, I think I was like pretty well invested in terms of putting in some sort of training for running related sport year round. 
And then in college, I got really excited about kind of learning just the hows and whys versus just kind of doing what I was told by by the coach or someone I perceived as knowing knowing more than I did about what I should be doing. So I spent the majority of my collegiate career kind of, I would say, somewhat catching up with my peers in terms of just getting into running is a more of a focus point and then uh, kind of building up the volume side of, uh, of the equation when it comes to getting better at endurance sport. I was very much a lower volume runner in high school, not necessarily by choice or design. It was just the way things kind of played out for for my trajectory with it. So college was a pretty big jump for me and kind of training stimulus. And then, like I said, it was a big kind of a mental dive into the hows and whys. And when I started connecting all those things, I started getting to the point where I was uh, looking at like, you know, what do I want to do with, uh, with my energies outside of uh, my career path, which was teaching at the time uh, post-college. And I came to the conclusion that I wanted to keep challenging myself with running. It'd be a great kind of hobby the that kind of evolved into what you could probably consider a professional ultra marathon career before my teaching career officially either ended or put on pause i guess we're still like uh up in the air with that to, to <laughs> a certain degree um but essentially in 2015 after i had been teaching for about five years uh i had had enough interest in uh, uh, being a coach for people on the one-on-one -on -one scale and I had enough interest from like sponsors that I could, uh, you know, justify stepping away from teaching and focusing on kind of building things out on my end or on the running side of things a little more thoroughly. And it was a tough decision because I was in a very good spot for myself as a teacher at, from a location standpoint of where my, my job was. And uh, I kind of knew in the back of my mind, though, like a career as a professional athlete is very much limited in terms of uh, youth, like you're just not going to be a 60 year old, like world-class athlete in basically any shape or form across the board in sports for the most part. So uh, I knew that if I wanted to try to take advantage of that, it was kind of now or never. And that teaching would be something I could always go back to if I wanted to after, uh, or if I fell flat on my face and it just didn't work out, I could return to that without too much, uh, too much issues. And it would be, uh, at least I'd answer the question of like, you know, what if, uh, that side of things. So I stepped away from teaching at the end of that school year, moved out to California and, uh, really started to kind of like, I think put the, the gas pedal down, so to speak into building my, my own, uh, running career. And then the stuff that kind of come with it, which I consider like coaching, podcast hosting and some marketing initiatives and things with sponsors and stuff like that. And it's been, been crazy. I've always said like, let's take it one year at a time. And as soon as it doesn't work anymore, I can kind of go back to something a little more traditional, but so far mm -hmm. it's been kind of heading in the right direction. So I uh, keep kind of going in for it, but from the start of it, I've had a, a quite a bit of success in like kind of the runner runnable side of ultra marathon. I think what some people don't always realize is when they think of ultra marathon, they're looking for like a specific distance or a specific event uh, or type of event. When in reality, ultra marathon can be anything from like a 50 kilometer. And sometimes those are done at like 10,000 feet of elevation with crazy amount of climbing and descending on technical train. Or you can have situations where you're running around a 400 meter track for countless hours, if not days. And there's all sorts of different options inside and outside of those two frameworks. So really I think now the sport's got competitive enough where the vast majority of people, probably outside of maybe a handful of people, have to really sort of focus on a specific aspect of the sport and say, okay, that's the part I'm going to really try to 
make myself as good as I can and potentially be competitive versus being able to kind of do every single ultra marathon style out there. Not only is there not enough time for that, but there's also probably not, you know, they're, they're different enough where you can start almost looking at them as semi different sports to some degree. Hmm. Wow. I mean, there you go. That's a, that's a hell of a backstory. And um, well, I mean, it does seem like whatever you've done and whatever decisions you've made, it seems to have worked out pretty well. And um, you have a you have a crazy few accolades there, you know, looking through your bio and your Wikipedia and stuff on your Instagram. You know, there's some absolutely jaw dropping things that you've done. And um, I'd really like to ask about that next, to be honest. It's something I, uh, I noticed looking at your Wikipedia and your bio, actually. Um. So I noticed that your 100 mile run and the 12 hour run were done on the track. And I have to ask, how do you prepare yourself mentally for that huge challenge? How did you deal with that sort of realization that you're going to be on this track for what the next 12 hours? Like, how, what does it take <laughs> to dig into that when you're in hour four and five and you've got this momentous task ahead of you? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I think there was a few things that kind of lined up for me specifically that made that venue something that was a little more approachable than what maybe the average ultra runner would consider a worthwhile use of their time. <laughs> uh, some of it was, I, I kind of started to recognize the strength of just specificity of training early enough in my racing career it was around like 2012, 2013 yeah, I started, I was training in the Midwest at the time. So I had a lot of really runnable roads was the kind of primary training template that I was had available to me. And then from there, it's like, what race do you do? So like you can go out West and do mountain races, or you can find races that are a little more controlled or very controlled in the case of a track. Mm. And I started to recognize, like I tended to perform a little better or feel like I was able to reach my full potential a little bit better when I was able to race on terrain that I was very, kind of used to training on as well. And I ended up getting invited to this race at the end of 2013 called the desert solstice track invitational. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it's a 20, essentially it's a 24 hour event where you see how far you can go for 24 hours, but you can do whatever, whatever you want with that time frame. So if you want to chase like an age group record for 50 K or hundred K or an outright record at a hundred miles or you know, whatever it happens to be within that 24 hour time period, it's, it's kind of fair game on that, that event. So I went out there coming off a, a bit of a surprise. Actually, I had been peaking for this race was the 50 mile U S uh, road championships. And I was quite fit going into it. I had won that race the prior year. So I was Love hoping to go back. Quite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a few workouts that kind of indicated, I didn't really recognize at the time necessarily, but looking back on it, I was like, Oh, I guess maybe, maybe I was equipped to run a, run a pretty fast time. But some of that was kind of overshadowed by the fact that I ended up getting second place at that race and, uh, had a better race. I did the prior year, but in my mind, I was like, well, I won it last year and then I didn't this year. So it was like, I, I didn't really know what to do with the rest of the year at that point. So I just kind of got curious about, um, about just like kind of the recovery side and how you could maybe structure a racing calendar. So I ended up jumping in another 50 miler, like 13 days after that race. And mm. I ended up running uh, a five hour and 12 minute 50 mile, um, which comes out to about, I think like six fifteen, six minutes, 15 seconds per mile or something like that. And I just felt like really, really strong on that race. Like I, I felt like I had fully recovered and was maybe even more fit than I was that two weeks earlier for however, for whatever reason. And it got me really interested in even 
more controlled environments. So that particular 50 mile that I did was like as about as flat of a race as I had done to date. Right. And shortly thereafter got invited to that track race. So I was like just super motivated thinking like the American record for a hundred miles was just a shade under 12 hours. It was uh, a guy named John Olson was actually the first American to break 12 hours in the hundred mile. He had done that a couple months earlier. So I was thinking to myself, well, if I could do 50 miles in five hours and 12 minutes, and that's after an, a previous 50 mile, like 13 days earlier, like in my mind's eye, it's like, surely I could split like sub six hour for the first 50 mile. And then, you know, hold on for dear life and, and maybe get an American record on the day. So I went there with like a goal of trying to break the American record for a hundred miles. And it, it just was a really good experience for me. Like, I, I think I was uh confident. There was definitely some ignorance is bliss going on there where like, mm -hmm. had I known what I know now about just the monotony of a track and the way you need to kind of like approach it, I may have been overwhelmed and had a bad day instead of a good day. So mm -hmm. Uh, the things kind of just aligned for me. I ended up running 11 hours and 47 minutes that day and breaking Ooh. the American record and didn't know it at the time, but there's a 12 hour world record too, where you just see how far you can go in 12 hours. So I found out around mile 90 of that race that that was even an option. <laughs> so <laughs> when I hit hundred miles, I kept running for a bit and I got to, I think on that particular race, like 101.7 miles or something like that. And, and, uh, was, was kind of sold on that venue just because, one thing you'll realize if you dig into kind of ultra marathon sport is like you get these different courses and different distances, but really comparing times from one course to the next and even one course to itself, because things like weather changes and trail degradation and trail maintenance and things kind of change a lot of, and just alterations. Sometimes people have permits that from a, a certain course that they have to like switch because they can no longer be on certain parts of it and weird stuff like that, that, make it a little bit more difficult to compare from one to the next. And I had this uh, sort of this urge to kind of just see like, how can I, how fast can I actually run hundred miles when I control as many variables as possible? And how can I make it as comparable from one year to the next so that I can really get a good look on my own personal development at that, that task at hand. So that's, what's kind of drawn me to the sport. And I think, or to the flat controlled running side of the sport, and then ultimately put me in a position where uh, where I've been able to kind of like justify the boredom and monotony of being on a track with, with that goal or that pursuit. But yeah, to sum it up, I think really also, I think you just got to learn to practice the mental aspect of, uh, racing in a way that maybe you're not able to do, or don't do as often with shorter distance endurance events, because you can sort of wrap your head around the distance a lot of times by just essentially doing it in training. Uh, whereas with a hundred miles, you kind of have to rely on your last hundred mile race. Cause you're going to get nowhere near to running a hundred miles in one shot in training. And that put me in a position where just getting out on the track for long runs on the weekends, when I got close to a race was both good mechanically and mentally practicing just like visualization tactics and things that would help me kind of break up the monotony and keep, stay focused when, when you get kind of bored and tired and the, the negative self-talks tries to kind of creep in. Yeah. Fact check me um, if I'm wrong about this as well, but reading up about the stuff that you know you've done and about about the hundred mile run, um, I think I read that you went an extra four miles after the hundred miles had been done. If, is that correct? Yeah, so it was a different race. I did that in 2019. So kind of a similar situation. I had uh, went there to try to break the hundred mile world record this time, and I ended up breaking it the world record at the time. 
was 11.28, I think 03. And then I ended up running 11.19.13. So when I hit that 100 mile mark, I knew there was also the the 12 hour world record at the time that was uh, within reach. So I kept going and picked up an extra four point, I think 4.8 miles or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I was reading up about that. I thought, wow, I mean, if I'd been doing that for 12 hours or however long it was, I just couldn't wait to get off the track if it was me and stuff. But you <laughs> I was eager to miles. be done for sure. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> you know, what? just just out of curiosity as well, um, how long does it, let's let's say you went and you did a 100, 100 mile run. How do you recover from that? How long does it take to actually feel like, okay, I can, you know, I can get up and I can walk now after this? Like, <laughs> yeah. what's, what's the feeling like the next morning as well? Yeah. So you're pretty stiff and sore the next morning. I think like the damage is minimized if your training is very established and then done in on the terrain that you're going to race. So for example, if I did my training plan for that race and then went and did a mountain course where there's a ton of downhill running, I'd probably be like very sore the next day. Mm. Whereas if I, I could have the same scenario occur, if I did a lot of like mountain running and then went out on a track and did like a race similar to what I've done. So there's a spec, a train specificity, I think helps with that. And then just a quality of training. Um, but you know, hundred miles is hundred miles, no matter how you look at it, no matter how good your training is. So there is definitely like, you know, the post race, usually for me, it's between like, you know, two or three days where you you feel the, you feel that muscle soreness kind of in there and it mm. sort of dissipates fairly linearly over the course of those three days. Uh, I'll usually give myself about a week of just like no running at all earlier in my career. I'd maybe be a little more anxious and after a third or fourth day, go out and just do some like easy, short, slow miles, uh, to, you know, kind of just see where things were at. But usually my general protocol is one week completely off the second week. If I feel like it, there's no pressure or no like structure to it. But if I feel like doing some easy runs, I'll maybe sprinkle some in there just to test where things are at. But as soon as it's not fun or tedious or something's bothering me, but either physically or motivationally, I'll cut it short and give myself that whole second week. Usually at that point, as long as there's no injuries or anything that is like lingering, uh, I start kind of thinking about what I want to kind of start preparing for next and then usually what I do is I ask myself, well, what, what excites me from a training standpoint? Because really like, even with these really long races, the majority of the time and energy spent is in the say four to six months kind of building up and preparing for it. So I find that if I pick a race that I don't necessarily want to train for, but I just, for whatever reason, am like excited about the specific event it doesn't end up going as well because you just don't have the motivation to really do the training at a high enough level that you're going to get everything out of yourself. So mm. I usually ask myself, like, am I ready to go through a whole nother training block that's kind of skewed towards flat runnable stuff? Or do I need to take a break from that and get out on the trails and do more climbing and descending and do a race that's kind of more specific to that terrain? Uh, and usually when I pick the right motivator, then after two weeks, I'm, I feel pretty good with a gradual rebuild into things. Uh, but I definitely take it slow with those those first few weeks and ease back into it versus kind of getting right back to peak training right away. Mm, there you go. Well, I'll tell you what, you sound very organized, but um, I know that if some miracle occurred and somehow I managed to do 100 miles in one sitting, I would be 
getting wheeled around in a stretcher for the next <laughs> three weeks or something until I could unlock every busted muscle and bone and ligament in my whole body. But um, anyway, uh, let's move on to question number three then. Um, so something a bit more specific now. So um, talk to me about the diet. So what sort of food and diet routines have you gone down and what sort of routes have you gone down with diets? And uh, what do you think are some of the best things to be trying and eating for super high performance running? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. I think it, it gets, it gets a little, I think, awkward for people because they want to think of running or endurance sport as this one thing. And there's got to be a perfect plan for all of endurance or all of running when in reality you have like a spectrum. And I think really the easy way to understand it is look at the intensity of the race you're doing. So if you're training for something like the 1500 or even like a 3k, 5k, 10k, you know, you're on the short end of the grand scheme of endurance sport. So you're going to be pushing some pretty fast paces and, you know, in some cases like up to and at your VO two max. And uh, yeah, so that's going to be like a very glycolytic like race effort where your body is going to need to speed up the process in which it gets fuel to itself. And that's going to be carbohydrates coming right out of your muscles. And there's certainly an element of that when you're running slower for like a hundred miles, but it's all ratios. And as you get slower and get down kind of at or below your, what you call like your aerobic threshold, which, I would put it kind of like the ceiling of easy running mm. is you, you just get, you have the potential to burn like a higher percentage of fat. So on race day for someone who's running all day long, you know, the intensity is going to be a lot lower and you're also dealing with other variables that are maybe not going to be there for the shorter races. Like you have to be eating and drinking during the event in order to maintain uh, energy and hydration and things like that. So then that opens up a whole nother, like variable, which is digestive issues, which, you know, there are going to be like somewhere in the neighborhood of around 50% of people doing a single day ultra marathon are experiencing some sort of gastrointestinal issue. And, and that can range from just like some stomach discomfort to like, you know, puking and, you know, bathroom issues and all sorts of things like, so it can get pretty bad or it can be pretty mild depending on kind of the person, the situation, all that. And for me, it was pretty clear that when I was starting out and doing 50 milers, that my fueling strategy was going to be problematic if I had to go much further than that. Um, I didn't really have a lot of digestive issues during races at the 50 mile distance, but it was, it was something where like I'd finish and it was, it was getting to the point where like, you know, I was starting to get like a lot of bloating and discomfort digestively. So I just think if I got to do this twice from a distance standpoint, it's usually a lot longer from a time standpoint uh, it was just, wasn't going to work. Um, then some other reasons gave me some kind of incentive to maybe play around with a different nutrition protocol. So being that the sport I'm targeting is longer in duration, I think I had a better opportunity than I would have say like in college to try out a lower carbohydrate approach to nutrition. So I did that at the end of 2011 and I mean, it worked really well for me. It, it probably took me a good year and a half or so to really figure out just where I wanted to kind of position carbohydrate, uh, percentages or amounts throughout the training block, because, you know, one week of my training doesn't necessarily look the same throughout the whole block. I might be doing like speed work focus earlier on long run development near the end. So just kind of figuring out kind of where I could get away with lower amounts of carbohydrate, where I needed to maybe congest a little bit more of it, um, was kind of that next step of that question after I thought, or after I decided that I thought there was some, some benefit or value for me to do a lower carb approach. So, uh, that's been what I've been doing ever since though. And it's been working really well for me. And 
Um, I think other ultra marathoners are finding that that's a good solution for them. Not for everybody though. I think like most ultra marathoners are probably going to have some sort of a moderate carbohydrate diet that they're going to utilize. And I think a good portion of that is probably just because that's what most people are coming into the sport from. So kind of my overreaching view of that is you may as well start with where you're at. So if someone's getting into the sport and they are following a moderate carbohydrate diet, I don't see a huge incentive for them to just like make the change for the sake of making it unless they notice that something's not working well. Like they have a hard time hitting like the fueling requirements, which if you're on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, you're probably going to need to target somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour during an event. So if someone has challenge a challenge doing that, then I think that's probably the first sign that is like, all right, maybe if we can't find a way that's going to allow you to do that, that is going to be sustainable for you, uh, nutritionally. And then on race day, get you to the finish line without your, your stomach going on you, then that's probably like a good indication that we might need to lower your inter-race carbohydrate requirements And the way we'll do that is by lowering their carbohydrate consumption and their day-to-day diet so that their fat oxidation rates improve relative to their carbohydrate needs at a given intensity. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting sport because there's a lot less, uh, available research just due to the newness of its popularity and therefore lack of, uh, a lot of financial contributions towards heavy research within longer endurance races, like hundred mile races. But then there's also this wider window. I think even, even if we did have all the answers to those research questions, I think we would still see a scenario where some people were going to get themselves to the finish line quicker with a lower carbohydrate approach and others would maybe find themselves there quicker with a moderate to high carbohydrate approach. And it's really just going to kind of depend on the individual. And since the intensity on race day is so low, there's opportunity for that without it being like, a very clear performance uh, enhancer or detriment, depending on which side of that kind of macronutrient uh, ratio, uh, high or low carb you fall. There you go. <laughs> wow. I mean, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I can only imagine being, you know, halfway through an ultra marathon or something and then having toilet issues. That's probably not <laughs> the place where you want to be. But um, look, Zach, no. there's, um, there's a lot of very specifics there. There's, you know, you've, you've been very, um, very specific with the percentages and stuff so let's just confirm something so sure. indian takeaway and can of baked beans or something before an ultramarathon probably isn't the optimal solution for diet then is that right um did you say like changing it like right before the race <laughs> no i'd be like an indian takeaway or something and uh you know kind of baked beans that's not exactly oh, gotcha. yeah. <laughs> <just a> track. <laughs> yeah that's actually an interesting point like even um like when you look at the recommendations as is, they will encourage you to kind of like stay a little more tame on like the fibrous stuff, like the day before, or maybe mm-hmm. even a couple of days before so that you're not just like adding a lot of bulk to your nutrition and potentially having that backfire on you on race day. So okay. I think regardless of whether you're kind of low carb like myself, or if you're higher carb, you're going to want to make sure you're eating things that are very familiar to your digestive system mm-hmm. the days leading in and then skewing towards ones that are maybe a little less, a little less like fibrous or that could potentially uh, be problematic on race day. Uh, but I mean, the general rule with endurance races, don't do anything too different, like the days leading into the race and what you would normally do for workouts that are going to be the most specific to the race itself. So for ultra runners, a lot of times, you'll find us doing like back-to-back long runs on weekends. So it could be like a Saturday, Sunday where you're running for like multiple hours each day. And 
through that buildup and that process, most people are going to find out kind of what foods that they can get away with eating the days before that. And then during and after and still feel good and not feel like they are adding extra challenges to their, to their endeavors. And, Mm -hmm. you know, generally speaking, if you can, if it works out well in that scenario, it's probably going to be your best bet leading in. So there's going to be an individual component there, but there are some things that are probably worth everyone considering. Um, So yeah, no, no huge, like, three pound steamed broccoli dinner the night before. Or anything <laughs> <like that. laughs> yeah, gotcha. yeah. Um, yeah. No trips to, uh, no trips to the McDonald's as well before the yeah. thing as well. I can imagine that. Would, uh... wait, wait till after for those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little celebratory burger or something after being on the, on the track for 12 hours. I can imagine that must be a good feeling, but uh... right. So for the fourth and final question then Zach, um, for the current runners out there, what do you do if you feel like you've reached a plateau and you aren't really improving your times of distance anymore? In other words, how can you transition from being an average runner who's a bit stuck to being a super high endurance sporting athlete? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's uh, it's always probably practical to look at like, why are you plateauing? Is it a scenario where like you're kind of doing the same things over and over again and then you reached your potential within that scenario and it's time to add an additional element or reorganize the way you're doing things so that you can potentially uh, have a change occur. So, you know, there's going to be like, there's going to be variables that are going to be unique here from one person to the next, like someone who has like an unlimited amount of time to train can likely pull a few other levers. Whereas if someone has like a finite amount of time available to train, they may have to be a little more strategic with it. Uh, generally speaking, I think most people are going to see improvements within ultra marathon, if they start training, like in a way where they're looking at all the different intensities that are within like a properly structured endurance training plan, whether it's like a 5k, 10k, a half marathon, marathon, hundred miler. And then just looking at what's the order of operations here in terms of the least specific stuff to the most specific stuff that I'm going to use on race day. And uh, then kind of moving through the process that way versus just kind of doing the same thing every week, week in, week in and week out uh, is, is likely going to give you a better opportunity to really make some meaningful adaptations to those target intensities that you're hitting. And then ultimately give yourself the best position to develop the race specific intensity and things. So I think uh, a lot of times people do better without like over fixating on long run development earlier in their training plan. Uh, because, uh, you can get a little bit of exhausted from it. If you're just doing long runs every weekend year round. And I mean, ultra runners are typically a big fan of that workout and that's why they're doing the sport. So it can be easy to kind of gravitate towards doing that year round. But what I typically see if someone's doing that is eventually they kind of hit this like sort of normalization of mediocrity where they're, they're not quite feeling as like excited about doing that stuff because they've done so much of it by the time they get to the race itself you know, they're not just, they're not as, as jazzed to be out there. So if we work on some of the other stuff, like short interval development, long interval tempo run development, and then at like maybe the last third of their training plan, really kind of hyper-focus shift a ton of the training load towards long run development, they get enough physiological adaptation uh, to be ready physically for the race itself. But then they also are a little more fresh in mind where they don't feel like they've just been kind of like banging that drum year round and kind of created that that sense of uh of sort of like exhaustion from it and they're both fit physically and sharp mentally on race day uh the other thing i'll add to that too is just like looking at your workouts whether they're early in the season or late in the season as opportunities to uh really kind of make the right mental 
decisions a little more intuitive. And what I mean by that is if you're running a hundred miles, you're certainly going to have phases throughout that where you feel like you're sort of unbreakable mentally, where you get a negative thought and you just are easy, easily dismiss it and focus on the positives and, and at times even almost have to hold yourself back. Uh, and then other times where you just feel like, you know, you're just at rock bottom. There's no way it can get any worse. And like, if you're already feeling this miserable now, how could it possibly get better and get all these negative kind of thoughts spiraling and you're going to get kind of a, you know, a combination of those going back and forth over the course of the day. So a lot of times like your workouts give you opportunity to practice the right response to that. And I think if you're consistently doing that in training and thinking about that in training, when you get to those spots in race day, you're just going to kind of do them naturally and not have to fight that urge uh, or find a way like to problem solve uh, mentally in the spot. So that can be anything from like when you're doing short intervals, you're going to hit a spot where those where you get to a certain number and you start questioning how many of them you can actually do if you're going to get to the end of the workout, if it's worth it, all these different you know ways that your body tries to trick yourself or your mind tries to trick your body into like not doing the hard work. <laughs> and when you recognize that spot in training, use that as a point of, okay, I'm going to shorten my goal. I'm not going to think of getting to the end of this workout. I'm going to think about just getting this next interval done. And then using that as a way to kind of like get yourself inch yourself closer to the goal and then ultimately accomplish it without being like overcome by the mental pressure of trying to wrap your head around the entirety of it all at once. And then that can kind of get even more specific when you get into like a long run development where you're the one I like the most is like, say I'm doing a 30 mile long run. When I'm doing that, I'm going to pretend I'm at mile 70 of the hundred mile race I'm training for. And I'm just going to visualize like exactly how I want it to play out. Uh, when there's a hard spot in there, I'm going to pretend like the same, I'm going to do the same things I want to do on race day to encourage the best decision in that situation. So that, uh, when that happens to me on race day, I'm more likely to just to kind of gravitate towards the right decision without having to burn a lot of mental, mental energy thinking about it. Oh, that's such a good point. And I tell you what, I was, I was just thinking something similar to that now. I mean, when you have something like 100 miles to run and you look at that whole thing, and you think I've got to do 100 miles. I mean, that must be a terrifying thought, you know, and it must be really, <laughs> yeah. really daunting for it. And I, I don't think it's actually possible. It's a bit like in life, really. You know, you have to have those those short, medium and long term goals, don't you? You need to think about every next step, you know, three foot world, you know, just focusing the things around you, then, you know, get to mile one, get to mile 10, get to mile 20. And, you know, when you start looking at things in that, you know, I've got to do a hundred miles, that's when you start to get that, you know, those negative thoughts towards the whole thing, don't you? But you've got to set these small goals and just reach each one of them and then tick them off, tick them off, tick them off. And then eventually you get there to that, that long one, don't you? And um, I think that's probably the same in life really, isn't it as well? I mean, if you start thinking I've got to be doing this and this year, I've got to have this income, you know, by then it's just, it, it get it gets a bit wild, doesn't it? But then when you have mm -hmm. those small goals, you know, for each day, and then you have, you know, something for six months, and then for three months, and then for a year, then two years, everything tends to get a little bit more manageable, doesn't it? I imagine that's exactly what it's like for the running. Yeah, it's pretty much identical. And I think that's what really is useful for like the average person to run 100 miles, if someone's <laughs> questioning whether they want to do that or not, because what you essentially do when you're running all day long or doing anything physically demanding that you're unsure you're able to do and then accomplishing that is you're compressing into like a single day that entire process. So like the blueprint gets drawn for you in your mind in a one day process, what sometimes takes people a lifetime to learn. And that that's so powerful in terms of translating towards how to view things that you just described perfectly in your day to day life. Like I wouldn't 
sit down today and decide where do I want to be when I'm 65 and then try to wrap my head around every little day-to-day, week-to-week thing that needs to entail that next, um, what would that be for me, almost 30 years? So like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would be overwhelmed by it. And you know, the same thing with the 100-mile distance. Like If I try to wrap my head around getting to mile 100 when I'm standing at the starting line, chances are I'm going to be overwhelmed by that. So thinking like, well, if this is a 30 year plan that I'm trying to do in life. Well, what needs to get done this year to make sure I'm on track? What needs to get done next year? And then, then take it one step at a time and make it manageable. Something you can actually wrap your head around. So in hundred mile racing, that might be, if it's a trail race, like I'm just going to get to that first aid station. I'm going to do it within reason based on my pacing goals, but I'm not going to think about the second aid station, the third aid station or the finish line at that point in time. And then when you get to that one, the next objective. So it can be very useful. I think looking at that and building those objectives into your race plan uh, and just having kind of like that, that big view of what it's going to take to do this whole thing. uh, But ultimately have it chunked and focus on one chunk at a time versus the entire process. Once you're out there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I I think that translates to, um, to other sports a lot as well. I mean, in fact, I'm doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu at the moment and I've been going since about February and um, well, I mean, let's put it this way: it's not, it's not a quick, it's not a quick one to rank up in, and you know, to get to get to a black belt level or something, you know, people are going, you know, ten to twelve years, even just to a blue belt. I know a guy who's been going about four and a half years now. He's just got his third stripe on his blue belt, and um, I think, you know, if if you start thinking about the whole, okay, I want this black belt sort of thing when you're, you know, just starting out, then it's just, it just doesn't work like that, does it? You know, you start to think, well, I've got to go ten years of this consistency, and it just seems like too big of a task to manage, and but, you know, the way to really think about it is, OK, I'm going to get to that next session tomorrow, next session tomorrow. And eventually you're going to get that medium term goal, which might just be that first stripe in your white belt or whatever stripe you're on now. And then just working, you know, through those short, medium, long term goals. And that just makes, like you said, everything just so much more manageable and so much, you know, just compresses the things down, doesn't it? I mean, like you said, great example, you know, if you're thinking about where you want to be at 65 or wherever you know and the things you want to accomplish it's just it, it, it gets out of hand doesn't it and then sometimes you know those tasks just seem a bit too far off and then you know you lose motivation for it and you start to think well can I really do this but yeah when you think about that next step or that next you know aid point or something it's just it's so powerful for your mind but it is kind of tricking your mind a bit isn't it mm-hmm. yeah yeah you I mean your mind doesn't care um what you want to do when you get into the thick of it, it's like, it wants, uh, it wants you to stop. It's like self-preservation to a degree. And it's just like, it doesn't like, if I go and decide, Hey, I'm going to chase the hundred mile world record at mile 70, my mind doesn't really care if that's what I want to do. <laughs> it's yeah. it's going to be, like, it's almost like you have multi, you do kind of have a conversation with yourself sort of where like, there's the, the ambitious, like dreamer goal seeker side of your brain. And then there's like the practical, like, Hey, I've got this like physical, like a body that needs to last however long Mm. I can get it to do. And this is clearly not something that is going to necessarily be beneficial for me to continue to push hard for another 30 miles when I've already traveled 70. So you sort of have to kind of like override certain parts of it (laughs) when when it tries to kind of put a governor on you a little bit, which is, I think the fun part about the sport is there is that aspect of pushing through those kind of mental blocks and it also opens up a scenario where I think there's always going to be races where you you have a better bandwidth or you just structure things better and are able to push through more of those where you feel great about it on that day. But then 
when you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, well, I wonder how many times in the past I was like at that precipice of pushing through another block, but conceded and did it <laughs> yeah. that day. So you do have a, there is definitely, I think a, a career trajectory thing that's kind of fun to look at too, in terms of kind of how you're able to like continue to establish and build upon that from one race to the next or one year to the next. Sure. I'll tell you what, just want to ask them. I know we're running over a bit, but I'm um, just want to ask one more thing actually that I've just thought of. Um, where Where's the hardest part in a hundred miles? I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I know you just said 70, you know, that's, that's, you know, where you're toiling and stuff, but is it so, I mean, what's the hardest mentally, you know, the hardest stage of it to get through? Is it, you know, when you're just starting, you've got this whole task ahead of you. Is it before you get to 50 and you're kind of like, well, I'm feeling horrible right now, but I've still got half to go. Or is it, you know, around the 60, 70 side of it where you think, well, I'm dying here and I've still got 30 to go. Or or is it, you know, the very end where you're literally, I, I don't know if I've got any any more in me at this point, but yeah, I'm still got to go for another twenty. You know, where's where is that that really where where is the, the complete dip in in the low side of it? Yeah, I thought a lot about this question, and I think it the answers changed for me over my career to where I used to think like there's going to be a certain amount of like mental and physical discomfort in those end stages, so like the last 20, 30 miles, almost no matter what, regardless of how slow I start or how fast I start, and I just have to like learn to like better persevere through it. Sure. Uh, I think like really it comes down to pacing. If you pace properly, I think the hardest point is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like maybe 30 to 40 miles in because you're still very early in the race. You've probably got to or exceeded about where you hit your longest long run at. So mm-hmm. you're kind of in this unique position where you feel like you've been kind of holding back a little bit because you're pacing yourself appropriately but you have a lot to kind of like still accomplish. So it's easy to maybe start thinking ahead too far and start doubting yourself or questioning if you're doing things right. Because a lot of times if you pace yourself right, you're going to be behind people you would normally beat. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just the nature of the sport. I think a lot of, I think when ultra ultra running will grow the most in the next decade will be people getting better at pacing races. And that's where we're going to see the biggest movement on race times, both from of course, record standpoint, as well as personal records. And if you pace yourself inappropriately, where you're going out too fast in the beginning, then I think it's definitely gonna be that last 20, 30 miles are just going to be like, they're going to feel, it's going to feel like half, if not more than the race itself, it's going to feel like time's grinded to the halt. You're barely moving. And it's just like pulling teeth the entire time. But Mm. if you pace yourself, right, it might be a real hard to kind of like hold yourself back and feel like you're doing the right thing around 30 to 40 miles. But then if you kind of get through that next third of the race and you find yourself at say mile 70, where you're inside your longest long run and you're feeling good, then you can start kind of removing yourself from the fact that you're running hundred miles that day and start thinking, Hey, I just got one more long run left and I feel good. So if you feel good with your longest, with your long run distance left, you start to be able to kind of compare like, uh, or convince yourself it's going to go well because you've already done a bunch of long runs to get ready for it. And you know how, how to execute those. So if you can yeah. get in a position where you don't feel all that much different at that point in the race, you're in a great spot. Brilliant. Thanks for that answer. And that is, our four questions done for today and before we wrap it up it is time for what i like to call the shameless plug zach (laughs) (laughs) feel free to take a minute and promote anything that you're working on want people to take a look at or just something that you believe in awesome yeah so uh my biggest focuses right now are just uh continuing to build the podcast human performance outliers podcast um and uh different uh kind of engagement stuff on social media like instagram 
all that stuff can be found on my website at zachbitter.com. Uh, in terms of things that are kind of coming up that are newer that I'm really excited about is right now I have kind of my one-on-one -on -one personalized coaching. And then I have also ready-made plans that follow my philosophy for people who don't really need, need or want to work with me, but kind of want my philosophy of training for whatever race they're doing, whether it's 5k or hundred miles or anything in between. Uh, but I'm also going to add uh, like a resource guide that kind of outlines the way I structure my nutrition so there's someone's interested in looking at like what it would maybe entail to try a lower carbohydrate approach to endurance. They can kind of see the, the way I kind of think about it and go through it. And that should be something that I'll have uh, available on the website before the end of this year. Awesome. Brilliant. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today for the Talk 4 podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Louis. It's been great to chat. Awesome. Thank you guys for listening. This has been episode 30. Wow, 30 episodes. Jesus. And if you'd like to listen to our past episodes, go and have a look at our channel. And if you'd like to listen in for the future ones, make sure to hit that subscribe button and spread some love by leaving a like and a comment. Signing off for now.